forever. Dog. I'm a writer, director, and technophobe. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and a one-woman tech department. <laughs> one-woman IT department. I'm getting better with it. Yeah. Um, but I still have, like, as soon as I am introduced to a, a type of technology or some sort of system that I don't know, I start to freak out. <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. I'm not like particularly great. I don't want to oversell my abilities, but I'm like, I can at least put things together in a way that I've noticed seems to elude other people. Yeah, I I never want to read an instruction. Something comes with an instruction. It's not for me. (laughs) Really? Why? My brain, like, it just like makes it so it's all like, and I just like, I don't comprehend it. But if you were to like, tell me, Allison, do this. And I'd be like, okay. And then you're like, do that. I'd be like, okay. But if I (laughs) was instructed to like read it by myself, I I really hate it. That means you're an auditory learner, right? Sure. I think I take things in reading them. Sometimes I have to reread it a couple of times. I can read an instruction manual. Like I can put stuff together. Mal and I were putting together furniture and they can do it like physically. I'm very weak. They they were like, read the instructions. And then they were like, can you understand what these instructions are telling us to do? And I was like, yeah, no problem. I think that I'm probably better at it than I think, but I still have anxiety attached to it. I have a lot of anticipatory technological instruction based anxiety. Sugar is actively licking a blanket right now, which is a behavior I've never seen from her before. I think they, do they do that when they're anxious? I think that's what they... I don't know. Bubby, it's okay. Good girl. Don't look that. Do you call her... Wait, do you call her Bubby? Yeah, all the time. I call Beans Bubba. Why do we do that? Oh, I call her Bubby. I call her Booby. I call her all sorts of stuff. I use a B too. Yeah, Bubba, Bibu. Okay, write in. If you own a dog, do you call them a nickname with a B despite their actual name? Please write in. <laughs> We've got to know. <laughs> anyway, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Update, she has stopped licking the blanket. You know what's fun is that sometimes we open the show with stuff that's like so intense. Like Uh that homophobic letter I got, your uh, abandonment. Like sometimes we really go intense with it. And sometimes it's just like, do you call your dog a weird nickname? Let us know. Well, that's life, right? Life goes in and out of periods of intense pain and agony (laughs) to just just like regular stuff, you know? Oh my God. (laughs) We've got an excellent episode for you guys this week. Yeah, I'm very excited to get into our interview with Daryl Bullock and ask him some tough questions about his writing on queers in the music industry. And later we'll be discussing memories. Can we trust our memories? What do we do with memories we don't want anymore? What are memories? (laughs) Oh boy. Memory all alone in the moonlight. I think that's how it goes. I could be totally wrong. I saw cats and I was very high. I've never seen cats. Oh, that's a song from cats. Now I get it. Okay, (laughs) anyway. (laughs) But first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. 
on, Anonymous UK. So many anonymous. Why do you think people are so anonymous with us? Maybe because our show is such an international sensation that everyone they know also listens to the show and they'll be found out. That's it. That must be why. Yeah, I nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So the TLDR from Anonymous is, how do you stay strong and motivated enough to push for change in a busy work environment? Oh boy. Dear Gabby and Allison, early last year, I qualified as a therapeutic radiographer. I believe we're referred to as radiation therapists in the U.S., treating cancer patients with radiation and started working in a large cancer hospital. My workday is very busy treating patients. I'm on my feet most of the day, and with being new to this clinical job, I have a lot of training and learning still to do. The addition of COVID has meant that we've had to take a lot of additional precautions for everyone's safety and ensure that patients receive the proper care and treatment. I absolutely love my work and find it so fulfilling, but I can see room for change in my working environment. In my first months of work at the hospital, I've had a few issues that have made me uncomfortable and caused anxiety in social situations. One, I joined the LGBTQ plus staff network, which was dominated by allies with little actual representation of the LGBTQ plus community. And as a cis white gay man, I don't add much. I was asked to remove my pronouns from my email signature because it didn't fit with the hospital's email format. What? I feel like challenging understanding and knowledge for LGBTQ plus issues will not only make mine and others working environment better, but I also think it will benefit our patients who are the most important. I can only imagine what it must be like for those less privileged than I am. In short, I really want to challenge these issues and bring about the change within my working environment to make everyone feel included, safe, and understood. The only issue is I have such a heavy working day, I find it hard to stay enthusiastic and strong enough to work on projects like these in addition to my daily workload and training. How do I keep up my strength to follow through with these issues without burning out? P.S. I love, love, love the podcast so much. Although you are thousands of miles away, it's so reassuring to know there are people out there that care a lot about improving society and do so in an incredibly smart and caring way. Also, I've applied to chair the LGBT plus network and I've taken the email issue to formal complaints board. So wish me luck. I want to talk about something that I wrote about in my book, Bad With Money, which is the uh, additional occupation of professional minority that comes with being a minority in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do your job, your your actual job, and then you're sort of expected to do the job of professional minority, which means that you may do your actual job and then you may have to look over someone's work to make sure it's not racist if you're black or join the LGBT plus network and, and chair these things and have these unpaid parts of your job that are uh, volunteer positions that you are not compensated for that have to do with your minority status in the job or as a, as a person. So if you're like a woman in STEM, for example, like you may have to join women in STEM groups, or you may have to like attend panels on the weekends and stuff, which like is your choice, but also something that you might deeply feel that you have to do. Whereas like other people, mostly cis white straight men at your job, probably just do their job and go home. Mm -hmm. Or they're not asked to do extra tasks during the workday, such as like going over someone's work to make sure that it's not homophobic or transphobic or whatever. And so that's like these extra stressors that you are not paid for. And it sucks. And it's like extremely common. I kind of think you should maybe not by mentioning it specifically, but when you're negotiating your salary, you should factor that into your head. You should be like, how much am I going to be stressed out by the people around me at this workplace? You know, if if you walk into a job and you know that that job is primarily people who don't look like you, you can reasonably assume that you're going to be doing a little bit of heavy lifting in that area. So I think you should factor that into your initial negotiation. (laughs) 
<laughs> you would share that with the person? No, 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 no. Just with? to no, just to yourself. I do a thing where I'm like, okay, this is going to be super annoying. So how much money would I want in order for this annoying thing to be worth my time? And mm-hmm. if it's like, if you think like, okay, so if they offer me, you know, 45K a year, uh, and I think it'll be like 5K worth of annoying. I'll come back with 50K. <laughs> and that goes for like every job. In terms of this job, it truly sucks that you can see the problems and you're doing everything right to fight them, but you still understand that like it comes from the top down, right? So like you being the only like gay person at the LGBT network and you know that you're white and cis and a man, so it's not the best representation, either that or they're not they're not doing enough to bring in other people to make them feel safe in order to join that network. You understand that that's a top down hiring problem. I think there's some element of like knowing what is in your control and what isn't. The email signature thing, I think that's completely reasonable to bring up. Again, like that's something that you're not being paid to care about. You are taking the bullet for future people who work there and even for patients who probably will feel safer seeing that in your email signature. You know, it lets them know that you care. It lets them know that you're like a safe place. You might even frame it in a capitalist framework and be like, this will bring in more patients. Um, This will make people feel better at work and then have them be better workers or whatever. So that's in your control. And I think sometimes the stuff with the LGBT network or sometimes you have to go through and really assess what is in your control and what isn't. The issue is that it's clear that this person really wants to do all this work, but then they're struggling with taking on too much, you know, especially because this is like their first year at this job. There's still so much training. It's a highly skilled job, right? high risk job, you know, like you're dealing with people's lives and people's illnesses. And right. do you know what I mean? And so you want to feel like you're able to give your full self to your job too. Can you split the labor? Can you find other people and be like, hey, look, I'm thinking of going to them with this email signature thing. Can you back me up? Yeah, maybe like trying to maybe figure out ways to delegate within that sort of community that's already there. I also think that you have to check in with yourself and know that like you will have different spurts of energy. So Mm -hmm. there will be a week where maybe like you are just like incredibly drained from just your basic work and you maybe had extra training and you didn't sleep well and your parents are visiting this weekend, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and so I think that there's an element of not expecting the same output all the time. Right. Then taking advantage of those weeks where maybe you do feel good and like you had a really restful weekend. And so going into the week, you feel like, okay, maybe this is the week that I like attack this issue that I've been meaning to bring up. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you go in feeling like I've got to give 110% all of the time, then that's when you burn out really quickly. I also think you can create allies from outside your specific marginalized group. So when I was at BuzzFeed and there was- You worked at BuzzFeed? (laughs) Like literally for nine months and it's all anyone talks about. Yeah, when I was at BuzzFeed, there was an incident where I felt that I was overworked in terms of being asked to read other people's scripts. And I remember I talked to something happened. I don't know how I got hooked up with him, but I talked to one of the black writers that lives in New York that I don't know if I want to say his name just in case, but he was at the New York office and we talked on the phone about how he felt similarly as a, a black writer at BuzzFeed. 
And although we were not in the same marginalized group, that's happened actually a couple of times at another job. I just remembered at another job I was at, a black guy was approached me and was like, hey, do you also feel this way? that this is sort of lacking in terms of like diversity or in terms of inclusion or in terms of whatever. And I was like, absolutely. So I think if you can find allies in other groups as well, like it's helpful to band together and to not think of it as like, this is just a a gay issue. This is just a black issue. This is just a, a Latin issue. You know what I mean? Like, I think oftentimes those issues are Venn diagrams. Yeah. And and I also think that you should look at it as Anything that you do is awesome instead Mm of anything you don't do is bad, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know? mm -hmm. So like, instead of putting all this pressure on yourself, if I don't accomplish this, if I don't give this many hours, if I don't do that, Mm -hmm. look at it as like, wow, I gave two hours of my week this week to this cause. That's absolutely, you know, it comes again into like the self-compassion and just like taking a step back and looking at it and from us reading this email, the fact that you have the energy to do any of this <laughs> is, you know, incredible because, mm-hmm. all, you know, the type of job you're describing is not just intellectually draining, but I'm sure pretty emotionally draining as well. You know, you're dealing with these patients and mm-hmm. there's a lot to take on and you're doing good just in your your regular job. So just finding pride in what you've already done instead of feeling guilt might, mm-hmm. might help with a bit of a reframe. That's really good. Oh, thanks. Are you a therapist? No. <laughs> are you are you studying therapy or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that you're not alone and you can't shoulder the burden alone. So mm-hmm. figure out who else is in your corner, basically. And then back up other people, too. If someone comes to you and is like, look, this thing is racist. Can you can you just reply to the email and be like, I agree, you know? Right. And also understanding that what you sort of touched on already is how much of a bureaucracy working at like Mm -hmm. a hospital is going to be. And so I think that there is this feeling of like, well, if I don't get the change in a week, you know, if I don't if I don't figure out this email signature thing within like a week, Mm -hmm. then I'm failing, you know, but sometimes this stuff just takes time. And sometimes like you do have to wait two weeks for somebody at Human Resources to get back to, you Mm -hmm. know, so giving yourself in that space of the waiting instead of being like revved up and anxious about it, just sort of knowing, okay, I'm in a system, making changes in a system takes time. Mm-hmm. And I, I will interact when it's my turn to do it. But sometimes you just got to kind of wait on other people, which is a bummer. But like, don't let that wait time add to your anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, use that wait time to solidify your arguments. <laughs> Actually, just do your job. Just do your job. Yeah, or just like binge watch Scandal. I don't know. <laughs> like, Truly. T- take care of yourself first um, because that's when you are in the place to help other people the most. Mm-hmm. I agree. So if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Daryl Bullock. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Daryl W. Bullock, is the author of six books, including Florence Foster Jenkins, The Life of the World's Worst Opera Singer, David Bowie Made Me Gay, 100 Years of LGBT Music, and The Infamous Cherry Sisters, The Worst Act in Vaudeville. His latest book, The Velvet Mafia, will be published in February 2021. He's also the host of a weekly radio show and popular blog, The World's Worst Records. Hi! 
Hi, thank you for inviting me on. It's an honor to be here. Oh, oh we're just, for sure. We take anyone British, really. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. It's an audio medium, so we like to give our listeners a little spice. <laughs> You've written about so many different things kind of in the music sphere, but I think what we really wanted to dive into on this episode is um, the book about LGBT musicians and sort of their untold story, how they've been treated in mainstream media, how they've been straight washed. Like, so what was it like diving into that particular project for you? It was a fascinating thing to write. I mean, I absolutely loved it. I've, I've always been fascinated with music and with music history. Um, since I was a kid, I was always just obsessed with the whole process of actually recording, you know, to being able to go out and buy a piece of vinyl. The whole thing's always fascinated me. I took, you know, I took tape recorders to pieces and record players to pieces and always wanted to work out everything about it. I've always been obsessed with music and with the recorded medium. Um, but this was a really interesting book. And, and I'm, when I started writing it, there was nothing else like it around. And that always surprised, that really surprised me that nobody else had thought about looking into it. And I'll be completely honest with you. When I first started writing it, it was it wasn't very good. It was a bit dull. It was kind of like an encyclopedia of, of you know LGBTQ people who made records and, and not really getting there. Mm-hmm. And it was David Bowie's death that kind of coalesced the whole thing, brought the whole thing together. Um, it was my reaction to his dying and, and the really visceral way it hit me that kind of made me reassess what I was already writing. And then I started to see how there's a thread that goes all the way through more than 100 years of recorded music, going right back to the beginning before jazz, where you can see how LGBTQ artists, songwriters, producers, performers, whatever, have been there all the way through. And not only out there performing, writing, recording, whatever, but influencing the following generation. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it came together. I, I realised every artist that there is obviously has it has their influence. And quite often that influencer is a homosexual man or a, or a lesbian woman or a bisexual or trans person or, or whatever. Yeah, so I was reading the book and I was floored by how in, it kind of fluctuates in terms of allowing someone to be out or visibility. Um, you talk a lot about people in like the early 1900s who were just like out and trans or out and lesbian. And like you talk about Ma Rainey and, and Bessie Smith. Can you go into a little bit of like that era and like how sure. people just sort of were like chill about things until they weren't chill about things? <laughs> Well, something that's really fascinating and really fascinated me about that period before the Second World War, really before the 30s and depression happened in the States and and prohibition and all that kind of thing. But that period, kind of after the First World War and before the Second World War, there were so many out artists, out Mm -hmm. performers, out singers, songwriters, the works. And we know they're out because if you go back and look at the newspapers of the day, there's kind of scandal sheets of the day, things like brevities uh, and, and magazines like the newspapers and magazines like that from the 20s and 30s. 
they're being reported about and being talked about in a very matter-of-fact way. I think it's, if I remember correctly, somebody like Walter Winchell was writing a column for one of the New York newspapers and is referring to one of the, I think it's Gene Malin, who was a kind of leading light of the of the pansy craze, as it's called, referring to him about, you know, getting married and how it's completely ridiculous and he's getting married because he's obviously a gay man. There's very little front. And I think you could afford, if you're in a big city, certainly, if you're in a major city like New York or, or Chicago or somewhere like that, um, and you had the support of, you know, of a decent job in a nightclub or wherever it might be, you could afford to be a bit more out and a bit more outrageous. And it was accepted because it's part of entertainment. You can be out, you can be outrageous, you can be over the top. People expect performers to be over the top. I think when you get to, I don't know, Rednecksville, Kentucky, it's very, very difficult. You can't mm. do that. And you certainly couldn't then. But what you could do then was maybe, you know, switch on the wireless or turn on, um, pull on a record and hear a voice that was recorded in Chicago or Detroit or New York, wherever it was, and realise that there is another life out there, there is somebody else. But but principally, we know these people were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, because they were being written about. And their friends were talking about them. And their friends were talking about them later. We know about Tony Jackson. Mm-hmm. Who I write about in the very early years, one of the very first people to write a song from a gay man's perspective about another gay man. We know about him because his friends talked about him later, and people like Jelly Roll Morton recorded sides for the Smithsonian Institute talking about him and talking about his life. So if you do the research, it's there. You've just got to uncover these stories, but they are there. They're not as hidden as you'd think. And it's only it's only really when Um, prohibition hits and depression and then we see in Europe the rise of 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 the right and and of Nazism that everything goes underground and it stays underground for like 20 years or more and what do you think is so universal about music or as you were saying like that like how powerful it was for people to hear their experience or what they wanted to be their experience in music through people who were able to be more open in these big cities, you know, do you think that there was a reason why maybe these LGBTQ artists resonated so much with so many people? Music from all artists, you know, gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual, whatever. Music has a power. It's, it has a power. It hits your very core. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband always says to me that music is my blood. And it's absolutely true. I, I could not exist without music in my life. And music is so important to everything, every experience. I always refer to these, these early years, um, the, the, the kind of pre-60 years, before artists started to come out. You could be living in the middle of nowhere, but you were getting an audio hug from someone. Somebody somewhere else is putting their arm around you and telling you it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. that's the power of great music. Great music lifts you, it empowers you, it emboldens you, it, it throws its arms around you and says, things will get better, you know, and, and God, don't we need that today, you know, don't we need, to, as we've seen recently, do we not need somebody to throw their arms around us and say, things are going to get better? Mm-hmm. And music does that. Music absolutely does that. It doesn't have to be rock and pop or classical or jazz, any music, if if it affects you, it does that. It brightens your day. It makes you happier. It, it's so important. I can't express it. It's so <laughs> not that important. 
So um, the new book that's coming out is Velvet Mafia, and it's about like more of the managers and like the behind the scenes sort of in the 60s, like queer people. And obviously, like I knew, you know, I think a lot of people know about Brian Epstein, who was the manager of the Beatles, who was gay. Like, so what what kind of influence did these people have behind the scenes and what were their lives sort of like as these queer people working in the, the the management or the business side? The new book is very much a British book. It's it's about the, the British music scene in the 1950s and 1960s. And at that time, it was still illegal in this country to be homosexual. Mm. Before 1967, right. you could be arrested and thrown into prison just for being gay. Not right. if you were a lesbian. Lesbian, lesbianism was never out, outlawed. But you could certainly be if you were trans, you could be if you were if you were bisexual, you you were certainly you could be thrown into jail if you were a homosexual man before 1967 in this country, just for being gay. Even after that, you know, if you happen to be gay and walking down the street and holding hands with another gay man, you could still be arrested. It's just ridiculous to, to concentrate on your question. The thing about these people is they were working together behind the scenes um, at a time when you could not be out. It was just impossible to be out. They were nurturing each other. They were supporting each other. They were forming a, a network. You know, we, we think about social networks now, all the kind of ways that people kind of interact. At that time, you know, no internet, nothing at all. You know, telegrams and telephones, and that was it. You had to write a letter, send it, to, you know, and send it to someone. They got it three days later. That's how you communicated. You didn't do it immediately on an iPhone or something. You know, it it didn't happen. But these people were actively supporting each other. So when they were having hard times, when they were maybe their careers were on the slide, things weren't working out for them, they had support, which for any LGBT person is really incredibly important having support. But at a time when it was illegal to be homosexual, that support was was essential to their lives. And that's kind of, again, like, like the David, David Bowie gay, you start to see this thread about how everything is connected, how, how Larry Parnes, who was the first, he was like our Colonel Tom Parker, if you like. So Elvis's manager, he was very similar kind of styles to that. He was the first big rock and roll manager in, in, in the UK and how he kind of influenced and kind of mentored Brian Epstein. He was, you know, as you know, the Beatles mm-hmm. manager. And it goes on and on and on. It goes on again. You know, Brian influenced and, and nurtured other managers. And that goes right the way through again. And it's in a way similar to the other book because it's all about influence. It's about how each person uses that influence, hopefully for the better. It was interesting to read about how many... Uh, straight artists are influenced by queer artists and don't even really know it or acknowledge it. One of the biggest ones was the song I Got The, which like the riff is used for My Name Is in Eminem song. And Eminem at the time was like kind of homophobic or was like seen as like, you know, uh, making a lot of sort of gay jokes. And then to hear that one of his biggest songs was influenced by a queer artist. I mean, how often does that happen without acknowledgement? Well, I think I think it happens a lot, but I, th- I think that's natural because, you know, what gay artist isn't, isn't influenced by a straight, a heterosexual artist. So it's going to happen all the time. You can get bogged down in the idea of gay music. I mean, it's, it's a really useful handle to drop things on, especially when you're writing the book. But music is music at the end of the day, and it influences everybody. And, and LGBTQ artists are 
just as influenced by heterosexual artists, if not more, because there are more of them around and they're more prevalent and they're more obvious. But of course, straight artists are, you know, disco. Disco could not have happened without, you know, gay men in, in Chicago and New York. It just couldn't have happened. You know, gay Latino men. And that's another thing, you know, don't forget, you know, the, 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 the LGBTQ people of colour who are so important to this entire story. You know, we would not have house music, uh, EDM, all those kind of things without people like Sylvester mm-hmm. or, you know, it just wouldn't have happened. Can you talk a little bit more about the history of disco and, and the role that they played? Well, the thing about disco is like what well, every single genre of, of popular music since jazz, so right back at the beginning of, of, you know, of the 1900s, 20th century, every single genre of music has at its heart LGBTQ artists. And LGBTQ artists have pushed every genre. Disco came out of those kind of New York loft parties and, and things like that. It, and, and from the kind of Philadelphia funk and, and, and the R&B uh, movement before that. But primarily disco happened because black gay men, Latino gay men, and women and trans and bisexuals as well. But the majority of these people were, you know, were gay men getting together, hosting their own clubs because they couldn't do it in the the bars and anywhere else. They weren't allowed spaces. They couldn't use spaces. They made their own spaces. They made their own spaces. They made their own sounds. And they nurtured artists from, I mean, everyone from from the Coquettes. So for the Coquettes, you've got um, Sylvester and you've got Divine. Uh, and right the way through, if you look at the British side of that, which is kind of easier for me, obviously, being where I am, everything that happened over the years happened because straight or closeted gay management heard this gay music happening, gay disco music happening in the States and brought it over here and kind of, you know, homogenized it and, you know, made it a bit more palatable, I guess, and a bit white. But... Um, the whole thing we had for the next maybe 20 years, right up to things like Stock Aiken and Waterman in, in the 90s and, and over here, things like Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan and all those things that followed from there. That's all from those New York love parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like being driven underground sometimes creates the best art. You have freedom, right? Because you don't have all of like the red tape or the big companies saying you have to do it a certain way so you can like kind of explore a bit more. There's definitely some of that to it, yes. And and you, you talk about freedoms not, not having big companies. The independent record business in this country, back in Britain, um, really kind of starts because of LGBTQ uh, managers and and financiers and, and songwriters wanting to get stuff out and not being able to do it on the major labels. So they started doing it themselves. So yeah, it goes on that need for freedom and kind of also a need for control i guess to an extent um goes right the way through the industry not just with artists and songwriters but with producers and label heads and all sorts can we talk a little bit about the gender bending so i know like um women wearing suits and like that kind of thing i was so surprised to see uh trans artists as early on as like the early 1900s and then also uh, the ways in which like women were wearing suits and like men were in drag. Like, can we can we talk about the sort of gender bending up, you know, until like the scandals of like Bowie and Boy George? 
Well, I, I suppose most of that starts with the, the music halls and uh, what do you call it over there, vaudeville, I guess, with not necessarily with singers per se, but with, with, with men who would spend thousands of dollars on really expensive games and come on and portray females, portray themselves as women. So that it's a precursor of well, it's drag, basically, isn't it? It's, it's a very early, it's very early drag. But what they were claiming to do was to put on, um, years before that, they called them tableau vivants. There was an idea that you just kind of go on stage and stand like this, and, you know, with this amazing gown on. And that was it. That's the act. But <laughs> just put that, on a gown and stand like that? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind <laughs> of what they did in those early days. Julian Eltinge would walk off the stage and, you know, in, in an incredibly expensive hat. And, he, and the thousands of thousands of dollars of gown in the 1920s, you know, with starving, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> and, and just stand there, didn't do anything else really. He might sing a little song, do a little patter. But the act was walking on and trying to pass as a woman. Ah. And then, yeah, it wasn't like, you know, trying to look like a like a, a docker or somebody from the Bowery, you know, with you know, stubble and a cigar and, and a nice dress. This was, you were passing as somebody else. And the, the hope was that your audience wouldn't know you were somebody, you, you weren't of the gender that you presented until you opened your mouth and said something. And of course, that starts to filter down into the clubs and into the underground clubs and things like that. And that's when it gets, I mean, choosing my words very carefully here, vulgarized. And becomes a little more ultra, a little more crazy, a little more out there. And artists like um, Gene Mallon in, in, in the clubs in New York uh, and I'm trying to think who else would have been around at that time. Later, Glenn Bentley, certainly, but maybe 10 years after that. But they would start initially um, dressing as, May, uh, almost trying to look like Mae West, but mm-hmm. being very, very obviously men in dresses. So it stops being this, it stops being this idea that you, you are somebody else and you are, you are suddenly very clearly a man in a dress, a man in a frock. And that mm-hmm. kind of starts there. And they'd sing songs, and the songs would usually be pretty bawdy, pretty outrageous, funny comedy songs, or songs of the day that they'd change the words of to make them outrageous and, and you know, and funny and, and rude, and uh, quite often having a go at the local politicians or what was in the news at that time. And it kind of all builds from there, really. Um, Hollywood has a big part to play in it, because once you start to see people like that on the screen, it, it popularizes again, and it suddenly starts to filter out to the smaller cities, to the smaller clubs, uh, and everything else. But again, kind of goes underground. You have Marlene Dietrich coming over from Germany, dressed as a man in the in the nineteen twenties, thirties, and a lot of that kind of going on. Um, Greta Garbo was, you know, very masculine looking woman, and, and there was lots to talk about her and her sexuality. But it kind of all starts really there. So, so it starts on the stage in, in the music halls and on and in uh, vaudeville, and then drifts through the clubs where. It, kind of gets mixed up and gets a bit more mad and a bit more outrageous and a bit more you know um loud um <laughs> and it's and it's happily reported again happily reported about these people start to become big stars they're offered hollywood contracts julian elton not julian elton i'm sorry gene mallin who i mentioned earlier on appeared in a couple of hollywood movies was going to appear in a film with clark gable and that helps to popularize the whole genre it filters out to other clubs suddenly you have you know, drag clubs in the States where people go along just to watch drag artists, usually to watch drag artists being incredibly rude. <laughs> that was what they did. You know, that was the idea then. You just you wouldn't just watch somebody walking around in a dress, you'd watch somebody 
probably sitting there with a cigarette in their hands, drinking a, drinking a martini and swearing at you for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds incredible. Fantastic. But like, then it all goes underground again, only to pop back up again. Everything goes underground because of uh, depression, prohibition, and and the rise of the third, of the rise of Nazism, the rise of, of the right wing in the 1930s. Immediately following the Second World War, you've got in the States, you've got McCarthyism. Yeah. The Hayes Code, all of it. Exactly. Reds under the bed, all that kind of thing. Everyone's scared. No mm-hmm. one's going to come out. They're too scared. So you have artists oh, in the 40s and 50s who are very clearly LGBTQ, but won't come out. They can't come out. They'll mm-hmm. be thrown in jail, so they don't come out. You know, Liberace, 20 years later, sued a newspaper in Britain because they did suggest he might be homosexual. And he won. <laughs> wow. And when, when they finally found out that he was homosexual, they asked for their money back. <laughs> you, know, it, but, you know. So does that lead to the kind of gender-bendy, like, Bowie stuff because it's like hard to imagine now that like Elton John was closeted, like Bowie was closeted, or or they they start to play with it like oh I'm bisexual maybe I'm not maybe I am Mick Jagger kind of thing like then it becomes popular so can you talk about how it becomes sort of like hip then to be a little bit queer? Most of that is happening because of the sexual revolution in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So 1960s, 67, Summer of Love, Flower Children, lots of drugs, lots of, you know, mind-altering situations going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots and lots and lots and lots of sexual freedom. People are angry. People are mm-hmm. fed up with being kept down. People have money, so they're spending it. And you have a whole generation of young adults who no longer want to be re- repressed. So in 1967, um, the law against homosexuality changes in this country. Homosexuality is decriminalized to an extent. In 69, you have Stonewall riots, which obviously were presaged by things like Gene Compton's cafeteria and and so on and so on. There were things happening before, but Stonewall, everyone knows. And then immediately after that, within really quick succession, you have women's liberation, gay liberation, and sexual liberation all happening at the same time. So within a very, very, very short period of time, people are seeing, they're seeing from the civil rights movement of the 1960s onwards, they're seeing people pick up placards and and wave banners and say, I'm not going to take this anymore. Mm -hmm. And they are empowered and emboldened by the fact that sexuality, homosexuality is on the agenda. It is, you know, has been decriminalized. You can start to talk about it. So that's where a lot of this comes from. People are less afraid, they're less circumspect, they're less worried that they're going to lose their career if they mm-hmm. dare, to, dare to question and, you know, this, they might be anything other than heterosexual. And what Bowie did was he was playing with those kind of, this gender fluidity, years before anybody had ever heard the phrase gender fluid, but he was playing with this idea that you could be one thing or the other, or both or neither. You could be anything you wanted to. And Bowie... Interestingly, although, you know, years later, he got a lot of um, flack for backtracking on saying he was gay and then saying he was bisexual and saying, I wish I'd never said it in the first place. In 1970, David Bowie played a gay liberation, no, 71, sorry. David Bowie played a gay liberation concert in Britain. He was raising money for the gay liberation movement. Never talked about it anywhere. Nobody, nobody ever talks about this. Lots of these artists that were around were caught up in this political melee 
at a time when gay meant anybody that didn't conform to the you know the society's idea of what was a man and what was a woman. Mm. Right. They mixed up sexuality and gender a little bit. Gay meant lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, you know, mm-hmm. queer, questioning, uh, intergender, the whole the whole shebang at that time. Mm-hmm. And lots and lots of people, including Mr. Bowie, including um, Elton and all those other kind of people, uh, at the time when, when Bowie, you know, said he was gay, people like Lou Reed were, jump, were jumping on the bandwagon as well. Alice Cooper famously, mm-hmm. you know, said that he'd quite happily be, um, I think he, polyamorous was the, or, um, was, the, was the phrase he used because he, he thought you could screw anything and why not? Why shouldn't you? What's the problem with it? Um, <laughs> not exactly the use of that word, but I love that for him. <laughs> you know, that's kind of it goes, but it's true. But, but I mean, that's 1972, 73, right. before we got there, you know. Right. So these these words meant something different than gay meant right. something different to what it means now. But they were genuinely excited by the freedom that the sexual liberation movement and the women's liberation movement and the gay liberation movement and the, and the, the civil rights movement gave them. And so they mm-hmm. were pushing boundaries. They were messing about. They were enjoying themselves. And they were saying... Why can't I put on a dress if I want to put on a dress? What's it going to give you? Yeah, it goes underground again because then there's all this scandal with George Michael and like being caught in a bathroom, trying to cruise. And like then it it becomes this this underground thing again where it's like rumor and like, you know, like I remember like reading of people being like Kurt Cobain is gay, like all these kinds of like rumor thing. It, it becomes then like bad to be gay again, weirdly. Well, Kurt was very gay friendly, thank the yeah. Lord. Yeah, mm-hmm. And, you know, he, and yeah, I don't I don't recall ever reading an interview when he said anything anything dismissive of, of the LGBTQ movement. But but yeah, there's a kind of cycle that goes on every every so often it, it's it's very similar to the cycle that happens in politics. Mm-hmm. You're seeing it this mm-hmm. week in the States. You know, things get to a level. And then they get banged back down again. And we have a nice period where everyone's nice to people, likes people and votes the right way and does the right thing and, you know, and supports the right people. And then after so many years, people get a bit bored with that and it goes back and it's, it's cyclical. It really is. A lot of it is, is caught up with the finance, mm. bizarrely. So when the world hits a um, financial kind of instability, is one of my, you know, when okay. it hits that kind of problem, as a rule, we tend to vote for the conservative because mm-hmm. we think they'll they'll sort out the financial hassle. They'll make the the bill, you know, the, the money in our pocket worth more. Mm-hmm. And when things are nice, and then when things are working great, and when we've all got good jobs, and we've got lots of money in our pocket, we vote for the left because we mm-hmm. know we know they're better for us. They're better for society as a rule. That life will be nicer and will all be more pleasant to people. But every few years, every, I don't know, 15, 20 years, something like that, we vote the other way because everything's gone to hell in a handbasket financially with the world. And the very similar thing happens with the LGBTQ advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think every time that happens, we take, we've taken a little step forward every mm. time. And we've gone forward enough so we can't go that far back in anymore. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yes, right. totally. So, so the closet door's open, but it's kind of only open that much now because we're not going to let it back open. We're not going to run back in there anymore. Can we talk a little bit about lesbians? Because I know uh, in the book you mentioned that 
their history is a little bit quieter than than gay men. Um, and, you know, we talked about like early jazz and and w- uh, those women wearing suits and things like that. Um, but can we like how did it start? How did the like lesbian folk into like Riot Girl sort of happen just for our listeners who are young? I'm, I'm always very, very careful when talking about um, the L in LGBTQ because I'm I'm the G in LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lesbian. I don't have that experience. I've not lived that life. But what I have done is I've talked to a lot of artists who are lesbian or bisexual women, trans women who identify that way. And so I think maybe I can paraphrase kind of a few of those I've talked to. And a lot of them, certainly in the 70s, were kind of caught up in the women's liberation movement because they saw that as where they should be Mm -hmm. rather than the gay liberation movement. So they kind of moved along with that. And lesbian music and women's music moved and advanced and formed around about the same time then and created its own distribution network, had its own stars, its own artists, had its own venues, its own touring thing, which we saw all the way through to things like Lilith Fair and, and, and stuff like that. And, and now what um, Cindy Lauper does with the True Colors tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so from, for the last kind of 50 years, it's been very much caught up with women's politics. Prior to the Second World War, the, the, the 20s, 30s period, it's a very, very different story. Women were women, not just lesbian women, all women were far more repressed and suppressed than they are today. They had less say in their careers and what they could do. So you find in blues, for example, I mean, can you, I, I cannot for a second imagine how difficult it must have been being a, you know, a black bisexual woman trying to carve out a career at that time. It's impossible. But a lot of their careers were controlled by men who were little more than gangsters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you've only got to look at the you know appalling tale of Billie Holiday's last years to see that black female artists in, in jazz and blues uh, especially were so badly treated by their male handlers. So it's a very diff- it's a very different thing. They, they they couldn't again. It was difficult to come out. But even then, you still get people like Ma Rainey singing "Prove It On Me Blues." You know, um, I went out last night. I can't remember the exact line. Uh, must have been, must have been girls because I don't like the men or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's fascinating that people still did this. Lucille Bogan was doing this. Um, Bessie Smith was doing this. It's it's absolutely fascinating that even with this massive constraint on them, with record labels saying no, you don't, and managers saying no, you don't, and producers saying no, you don't, they're still doing it anyway. <laughs> it's incredible, absolutely incredible. And that's another way that we know these people were out there and doing this stuff and existing and getting on because they've made the recordings. They've left us this legacy. How do you feel about people choosing not to address their sexuality? Like, do you think that that the audience is is owed that if you are an LGBTQ artist? And I'm not saying that I believe that at all, but do you like because music is personal and you're talking in a lot of lyrics are personal and, you know, like, do you feel like there is some obligation to potentially like use the pronouns that are true to your life or or do you feel like the audience is owed nothing and it's just a personal choice whether to reveal that that about yourself i tend to believe that it's a personal choice Mm -hmm. i think i think you have to be true to yourself and you have to be honest with yourself however i do think there are times when an artist owes it to their audience to be honest this is a difficult one but i think Mm -hmm. for example Freddie Mercury, 
mm-hmm. in his last years, I personally believe if he had come out, he may have helped save lives. That's a very, yeah. very personal belief. I'm not, you know, it's his choice. It was his choice to choose his own time to come out. It was entirely his choice. I personally, as someone who didn't know him, I feel that maybe if he'd have been more outspoken, if he'd have come out and said, yes, I have this horrific disease. Right. People might have gone out and got tested. People might have thought twice about what they were doing in bed. I don't know if that's true or not. That's a very, very personal uh, opinion. As a rule, I think an artist needs to do what is right for them. Whatever you do, whoever you tell, however you come out is your choice. The only thing is, don't be a hypocrite about it. Yeah. Don't lie. Yeah. You know, don't stand there and tell me, and you see, you especially see this in politics, don't stand there and tell me that my life is worth less than yours because you are pretending to be straight and I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know, and then 20 years later, I come around and say, oh, actually, I was gay and I was lying all the time. Because I'll take a stiletto heel to your head, frankly. <laughs> you know, because that the hypocrisy is the worst of all. You know, don't yeah. lie to your audience. You lie to your audience, you deserve to lose your audience. Yeah, it's difficult because you see sometimes when things swing back to queer being trendy, you wonder if people are banking on that in a way that is like taking advantage of of the queer audience. But the queer audience, it's so fascinating to me because like there, you know, the ways in which like we don't turn on certain people, like Cher can do no wrong. Madonna can do no wrong. Madonna's like been so racist so many times and it's like, doesn't matter. Um, Like the the ways in which, and I wonder if it's, if, if that is mostly like male, like gay men towards female, straight, female, straight, quote unquote, who knows, female artists. I don't know. What is that particularly like? And they're not, I don't know, not even, I guess I'm I'm saying that the gay men are going towards straight artists. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And I honestly don't know why it happens. Um, yeah. Madonna's a really great example. You know, she spent years, you know, pretending to be lesbian, pretending to be bisexual, pretending to be this, that, and the other. And yet she can do nothing wrong as far as certain gay men of a certain age are concerned. I didn't realize she had pretended that. I mean, I don't know if she pretended. Like, she played with, like, all this kind of sexuality stuff, which, like, at the time, like, that's not that's great. I'm sure it, like, contributed to women pop stars feeling like they can you know, do what they want to do. I'm sure there's a direct line between her and Ariana Grande's 3435. Like, you could make that parallel. There's there's definitely a a large number of gay men <laughs> who love a diva mm-hmm. and who will support them forever. And that's, that's not just Madonna and Cher and, and those guys, but that goes back through Judy Garland and, and right. you know, and before then. They love a, a Diana Ross, you know, they love right. a sob story. They love a diva. They love, um, you know, poor little rich girl gone bad kind of thing. They just love it. And, and you can see why, because there's a massive kind of, there's a camp element to that story. Right. I mean, I mean, even even when Madonna was, you know, sitting on, I don't know, Letterman or whatever it was, holding hands with Sandra Bernhardt and pretending to be, you know, pretending to snog. Right. You know, all that kind of stuff. This, I really, <laughs> I can't understand it in exactly the same way I cannot understand why Morrissey still has a career. I just can't yeah. understand it beyond me. Well, it but, could be just like white gay men don't care that much about racism might be the thing. 
I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's that. I really don't think it's that. I think I think what it is is once you find, once you have an icon, once you find somebody and you identify with it's you don't want to lose that. I mean, yeah. I, mm. I I grew up listening to the Beatles. I love the Beatles. I will right. always love the Beatles. I cannot suffer Paul McCartney's solo career. But you, bitch, about Paul McCartney, I'll take you outside. What do you think is the deal uh, in, in the flip side of the gay men being obsessed with like Cher or Ariana or or Mariah? What do you think like of this sort of thing now with queer women being obsessed with Harry Styles? Did queer women get on board with like they love Bowie and they get on board with sort of the gender bending all the time? I think I think everybody loved Bowie. And if you're going to talk about gender benders, I mean, everybody loved Boy George for a period, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um I, I, I couldn't tell you why queer women love Harry Styles. <laughs> I mean, I could. I mean, I think I could tell you, which is that like an appreciation for soft masculinity. Like I'm, I'm bisexual, and I think like there's just this. We love to see a a guy being sort of soft or like masculinity presented in a feminine way. I think certainly look back to the 1970s and see a massive uh, female audience for somebody like Mark Bolan, who right. was very very feminine and and a bit of an arse as well you know on the on the quiet but you know very very feminine very kind of you know gender fluid again for a while again you know came to be bisexual did all that kind of thing but he had a, a big female audience uh, mm-hmm. David Cassidy big 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 female audience you know and stuck with him forever I think it's always been there there's a definite maybe it's a nurturing thing that kind of you you know you kind of want to look after someone who is a little bit fragile and needs a bit of care um, I can understand that. That's that's a kind of <laughs> that's an instinct that we all have. I think you know we kind of yeah. want to nurture and look after people. It's like the emo. Like it was. I remember kind of boys in my grade being like, how could you like the My Chemical Romance or Panic at the Disco, all these boys in makeup and, and tight pants? Like, aren't we taught to be masculine or whatever? And they would be so frustrated by <laughs> all the girls having crushes on these like you know, gender bendy sort of boys, not just queer women, but straight women too. Um, and I think that's like such a f- fun thing to think about and explore. Isn't that great that we can have, you know, crushes on different people that we don't mm-hmm. have to kind of conform to our own idea of what, you know, sexuality should be, that mm-hmm. we can have, you know, perfectly acceptable, perfectly safe, perfectly uh, healthy, you mm-hmm. know, crushes on on, on artists like Harry Styles or Madonna or whoever else it might be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing at all. And I like the idea that um, that someone presenting that kind of fluid or or ambiguous sexuality can appeal to both. Why not? Why not? To both men and women, straight women, gay women, trans women. Why not? Mm-hmm. All kinds of people. All kinds of people. All kinds of colours. All kinds of sexualities. Do you know what really appeals to everybody? Would you like to play the game show hypotheticals with us? Well, of course I would. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Perfect. <laughs> so hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you have and then tell me what you would do in that situation. Okay. okay. So our first game is a spin-off of America's favorite game show. And the game is, would you stay with this partner? You find out that your partner of 42 years is actually an alien who took over the body of your actual partner 41 years ago. They have been incredibly kind and loving to you ever since, 
but they did have to kill your original partner's soul <gasps> to take over the body. Oh my god! Would you stay with his partner? Oh yeah. Oh. Okay. Oh my god! So <laughs> who was I getting to know? The alien. No, you had a year with the original partner, and then the alien took over the body for the last forty-one years. How much did their personality change? Well, I like to acknowledge that Daryl said absolutely. <laughs> no question. No question. No oh, say, say more about that. Uh, I just, I'm just remembering an episode of The Simpsons where something really similar happened. And Marge ends up in bed with not Homer, but it, it, will, it will do her. Kind of thing. Um, if, if you spent 41 years with this person and you've got to know every single thing about them, the fact that they're an alien is kind of neither here nor there, really. No. Is there an issue that they murdered your original partner well you know I've, I've murdered a few wasps here and there you know, what's the, what's the big <laughs> to the alien humans are wasps no but I, they they were sent here with a mission and they had to take over a body and they happened to take over your partner's body like and, people that's fine you know <laughs> i mean it's that's that's just like it's just like being in being infected by a by an organism and the organism eats its way through the you know the rest of the body it's feeding off it it's a bit like um I don't know worms or something you know maggots do it don't they What's and we problem? never get mad at maggots yeah so you're exactly. dating you're you're open to dating a maggot <laughs> I'm open to dating anything <laughs> although my husband if he's listening will kill me for saying that. <laughs> After we've been together for 15, 15 years together now, if, if I if I date anyone else, he'd kill me. But um, <laughs> happily married, happily monogamous. But yeah, I'm, I'm not fussy. Oh my god, I'm fifty six. I can't afford to be fussy. <laughs> and you've had forty one good years. You know that's better than most relationships. Gabby, did this change your mind? Are you now on board with your alien? I wish that they had told me year one. Um. <laughs> I understand, I guess, why they didn't. And if they truly love, ugh, I don't know. At that point, I'm so old. What am I going to do? Get on the apps? Ugh. Okay, fine. Fine. <laughs> well, it's actually a good thing because your original partner sucked and you thought that they just sort of matured after a year. But in reality, it was a whole different being. <laughs> you upgraded without even realizing it. Wow. <laughs> I would did not see that coming. <laughs> okay, so our next game is would you lie or tell the truth? Your partner has been going to school for massage therapy and are so excited for their new career. Upon graduation, they finally give you a massage and it is so terrible, you think they might have permanently damaged your body. When they ask you how they did, would you lie or tell the truth? And they're so jazzed about their new career. I'd probably tell the truth. Really? Yeah, I, I think truth's important. I think truth is important in a relationship. And I know obviously it would hurt him. It would be very unpleasant for him to learn this. But I'd rather be honest and deal with that and sort it out than lie about it and then have him go and damage somebody else's spine. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I like that truth is important here, but not if your partner's been lying for 41 years and was an alien. <laughs> I was assuming it was a different partner. I can't imagine the maggot going to school and learning how to massage. Well, so what would you do, Gabby? Would you tell them? Yeah, because I don't want I don't want to get sued for medical malpractice. And then and then where and then they take all of my money because the person that they next do it on sues them for malpractice. Oh, that's very a very Gabby answer. That's a I don't want to lose point. my money. Yeah. 
probably not many maggots come with their own dowry. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very true. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll give you both that you both got the right answer, but I like uh, Daryl's reasoning of honesty and truth versus Gabby's financial fear. (laughs) That's fair. Okay. Our final game. Are you a terrible parent? Your six-year-old overhears you calling your mother-in-law, her grandma, a self-righteous bitch. (laughs) A few days later, your daughter gets mad at her grandma for refusing to give her a cookie and calls her grandma a self-righteous bitch. When your mother-in-law confronts you about it, you deny having any idea where she could have heard that language and ground your daughter in front of your mother-in-law. Are you a terrible parent? I'm laughing and laughing at this because I've got a feeling my mother-in-law will probably see this. Oh. I I adore my mother-in-law. She's absolutely lovely. But, oh, my God, of course I'd lie. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I don't know where my six-year-old picked this up from. Probably from my mother-in-law's son, not me. You would just ground your kid? Well, I would ground them for use of, I guess, use of the B word. All right. Seems pretty hypocritical. I, I, I couldn't ground them if they had done, if they had only parroted something that I'd said. I would tell my mother-in-law I'd grounded them. Mm-hmm. I would tell my mother-in-law they'd been disciplined. And <laughs> right. I'd take them home and open up the cookie jar and give them a cookie and tend to bugger off you, little bitch. Okay. So here, truth and honesty don't apply to your mother-in-law. <laughs> Just to your partner. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? It depends if I want to if I want to maintain a good relationship with my mother-in-law or not. And I, I would like to maintain a good relationship with her. And you have to lie to do that sometimes. We all know that. That's just the truth. <laughs> oh my god. I guess what the takeaway here is lie to your mother-in-law. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure I'm sure many people would support that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. Thank you so much for joining us. This was so amazing. Where can people find out more about you and all of your books? All the books are available through Amazon. That's an easy one. Barnes and Noble in the States. Um, any independent bookshop should be able to get them. Um, the Velvet Mafia, the new book, is coming out in the States at the end of February, I think. It's out in Britain on the 4th of February. So it's coming out a couple of weeks later. Um, Google, Google me. You'll find me. I'm all <laughs> over the place. Amazing. Thank, Thank you so, so much. much. Thank you very much. It's been fun. It's been fun. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about memory. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. Baby. Um, so this is, I didn't even realize, fitting with a, his, a history lesson episode of, of Just Between Us. Oh, that's true. I thought we could talk a little bit about memories because I find them very confusing and misleading. I have a terrible memory. Me too. I went back and read my old diaries from high school. There's whole groups of friends and people that I fully do not remember. Mm-hmm. There's some memories that like super stick out from childhood and and then some that I just like, I I don't know where they went. I've started keeping journals now because I can't remember anything. I I went back and read some stuff about like ex like exes of mine and what I wrote about them and how much I like cared about them. And I'm like, that is so confusing to me. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I just start each day like 50 first dates. Like I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what happened yesterday. I couldn't tell you. But then certain things are just like seared into my memory. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because you your memory is 
I know it's going to sound dumb as you remember it, right? I'll remember my house growing up, the, the house we moved out of when I was 14 or 15. But when I see pictures of it, it's like little, I remembered certain things correctly and certain things not correctly. Mm-hmm. And like, it's sort of jarring to see the like the ways in which I viewed things was different than what it actually looked like. I have a horrible memory. I don't mm-hmm. really remember my childhood. <laughs> I, but do you think that this is because we we were both we both had traumatic childhoods? I don't know uh, because it's so, somewhat genetic. My dad and my sister both have really bad memories too. Yeah, um, and I feel bad because my mom keeps bringing up like trips we went on, and I'll be like, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> But you know what I do remember is I do remember feeling safe. I do remember being taken care of. I do remember being given opportunities and like, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe not the specifics, but I remember the feeling of it. I've heard like interviews with people who like can remember everything and it's horrible. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it, there's something that is like, like almost like a prison and being able to remember everything. I think I'm protecting myself for sure. I think I don't remember a lot of stuff. And like, there's a lot of therapy to be like, well, you could go back and you could remember things. I'm like, you know what? I'm fine. Like, I don't really need, I don't need to remember it. If I don't remember it, I'm sure my brain is doing me a favor. (laughs) Well, I I feel with my OCD that I am, you know, I'm so terrified of lying um, or misleading. And so with memory, especially, that's like kind of a, a real issue for me because I already don't trust my memory Mm -hmm. so then I'll say a story and I I don't know if you've ever noticed this but I'll say a story and then I'll immediately be like but maybe that didn't happen yes or or you go I don't know I don't know if that's true (laughs) you'll say something and then you'll go I don't know if that's true I know yeah and I really struggle with my memories you know and something that was interesting was you know I'm, I'm in this class about trauma And we were kind of talking about repressed memories. And I was sort of like surprised to hear that my teacher really does believe in them and thinks that that is a thing and that they can sort of reappear and and stuff. And I sort of brought up the issue that we kind of talked about in the Satanic Panic episode about a lot of repressed memories end up being proven not true. And so I was sort of like, well, how do you know if your client is remembering a real memory or a fake memory? And she was sort of like, well, it's real to them. So I treat it as if it is real. Whoa. That's one way to look at it. I'm sure other people disagree. In a way, it's like, regardless of if it's true or not, if that's how you remember something, you're relating to the world as if that's how it happened. Well, even true is kind of uh, hard. Multiple people can see something happen and remember Mm -hmm. it totally different ways. I find that with like the true crime podcasts I listen to, how often people will describe the same suspect totally differently Mm -hmm. or they'll end up with like multiple sketches or someone will be like, this is what happened, then this, then this in terms of like as a witness. And witness testimony is like so subjective and so hard to to use in terms of like catching someone or finding, you know, the, the root of what happened in a trial. Like everyone has their own view of what happened. You and someone else could see the exact same thing happen and mm-hmm. come away with completely different ideas of what happened. And that's what's so hard in relationships too, right? Like if you break up, you know, you each have your own side of like what happened. My thing is like, you know, do I just throw out like the, the entire time I was with Jake, you right. know, because those memories are now like kind of painful. Right. And so like, do I just like not let myself think about all those memories, you know, and like- Maybe for a while don't. Yeah. And then do you return to the memories? You know, how much of it was true? Like- also, like, I'm sure my version of, of our relationship is completely different than his version of the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in that, like, talking to my therapist the other day about, like, how do I move forward? And 
And she was like, you know, part of moving forward is is creating new memories. Mm-hmm. Is like not having him be such a big part of my brain through creating new memories right. with other people and doing other things. And, you mm-hmm. know, and it was interesting that she phrased it as memories versus experiences. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because at the end of the day, you, you go to sleep with your memories. You're not like at a party as you fall asleep. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting too to like rewrite stuff. Like I remember when I was uh, breaking up with Garrett, mm-hmm. I was upset and I was like, everything was perfect. I can't understand this, blah, blah, blah. And I remember you were like, two weeks ago, you thought something he did was corny and stupid. And I was I like, that. see, I don't remember. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. And I was like, what? And you were like, yeah, I don't want to say specifically what it was, but you were like, yeah, like two weeks ago, you said something was annoying. And I was like, oh, like you, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you rewrite everything. Or you give priority to things to to fit your narrative. Mm-hmm. I think that's really it, right? So if you, if you're mad at someone, then all you remember is the bad things. Mm-hmm. If you miss someone, all you remember is the good things. And mm-hmm. then- I think also like memory is this thing where like it does not stay the same. Like every time that you return to it, you almost like lose a layer of it yes. or it becomes something else or you shift. And and so it, it becomes even less close to the truth. And then the memories that are just, I think I've talked about this on the podcast, but so my sister has been adamant that like we had a pet turtle. What? No one in my family remembers having a pet <gasps> turtle. And we were like, that's weird, Joss, like whatever. And I think that's what happened. Again, who knows? I might be remembering this wrong. Right. <laughs> but then we were watching a home video and there was a video of us with this turtle. <gasps> and it was like a pretty big turtle. And its name was Teresa, which I know is weirdly your middle name. Whoa. And like my parents were sitting there watching video evidence of the fact that we had this turtle. Oh and they my were like, God. do you remember this? And neither of them had any memory of this turtle. And my sister was like, yeah, I totally remember the turtle. And we were like, what happened to the turtle? And she was like, oh, okay. So one day we lost it in the house. That doesn't make any sense. Like we just assume that we just like let our turtle get lost in the house, died and decayed. And we just like never attended to it again. Like how could that be the reality? But that's all that she remembers. And none of us even remember the turtle. Oh my God. Isn't that wild? That is wild. And so like, since we watched these whole movies like a month ago, like we occasionally will be like, what what happened to Teresa? Like where yeah. is Teresa? Wait, I want merch that just says what happened to Teresa with a picture of a turtle. <laughs> I want know. a shirt that says what what happened to Teresa? W-H-T-T, what happened to Teresa? As an adult now, if I was to say to Jocelyn, like if I told you that I just lost a turtle in my house and then went, oh, well, I've lost my turtle. <laughs> Would you be like, that can't be like, but because right. it, she remembers that she's like, yeah, we just lost the turtle and that was it. Your dad absolutely got rid of the turtle. Not even and outside. To- that no. lost it inside Your dad house. absolutely got rid of that turtle and lied about it. That's a Ken he, Raskin move. I know, but he doesn't remember. You think he's lying about that? No, maybe he oh. blocked it. Maybe he felt bad that he like just told Joss we lost Teresa in the house. I don't know. Oh and God. also what the best part of that video was so my grandma was in it and my grandma was like saying that like, oh, this turtle is like pretty boring. And then both my mom and my sister get so defensive and I was like, it's not boring. It actually does blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (gasps) Was your sister so vindicated? Maybe. 
But then, yeah, I don't know. Because to her, the turtle always existed. Right. I had a thing like this where I have very distinct memories of my dad in the late 80s, early 90s wearing... Late 80s? You were like two years... You were like I was two years old, so I probably don't have... But like, I've seen pictures too. But like, in the 90s, my dad wearing primarily very short shorts Mm -hmm. and almost like crop toppy tops. Yeah. It came up because Mal was talking about their dad, who's like kind of a big, like gruff, like New York guy. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of weird. And Mal was like, no, it's not weird. That's a typical dad. Like your dad is like an effeminate European father. And I was like, yeah, I guess. So I was like, okay, he wore a lot of short shorts and crop tops. And my my dad was like, no, I didn't. But then you found them, right? We found pictures of him dressed like that. And I was like, that's what you wore all the time. Like, I remember you outside, like pruning the trees in like little shirts and short shorts and Adidas sandals and sometimes like a gator's visor. And he was like, no. And then we found pictures of them. Totally. But then it's like so disorienting, right? Because it's like, what does matter? Does Mm -hmm. what actually happened matter? Or is your version of what happened matter? You know, and like, will you ever figure it out? And like, but there is like a lot of theory and like, um, some schools of psychology where like they'll ask you to recount like three childhood memories Mm -hmm. and then they think that like what it is that you remember is actually like very revealing of who you are really and and it has to be like like true childhood and probably a lot of people depending might only have three you know or Mm -hmm. might only have a handful and so like that is like a way into like getting to know someone's psyche is like through what their like distinct childhood memories are Or what you're told by your parents. No, it has to be something you remember. You remember. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, how much are you influenced by what your parents told you? Because it can create narratives. Like, I'm sure Cheyenne truly believes she was a bad kid, which I Mm -hmm. don't know if she actually was. Or like, you know, I think we have like things that are told to us about us. And Mm -hmm. then they start to form as memories in our brains. And we're like, yeah, that is what happened. It's so bizarre. Yeah, it's spooky what you remember, what you don't. And that's why I like documenting things, actually. I, I've really started to watch a lot of old home videos. And like, I was in the hospital when I was in third grade for like a month. And I asked my mom for all the documents from when I was in the hospital because yeah. I wanted to know. Like, I was like, what what happened? And she can kind of recount it to me. But I was like, I want to see like what the doctors actually thought and like what the what the situation was. And she's going to hate this. This must be so hard to be a parent when your kid is just like remembers only the bad things you said. Like when you're like, I gave them such a good childhood and all they remember is that one time I said they had a unibrow and now they Mm -hmm. have a complex about having a unibrow. (laughs) Sorry, mom. So there was like a part of the documents where the doctor, I was like eight and the doctor was like, she seems depressed and like gives like a recommendation for me to go to therapy. And um, my mom did not remember that at all. And I was like, so interesting, but it says like that I should be in therapy. And she I was like, did I go to therapy? And she's like, no, (laughs) like, but it felt vindicating to me to realize that this sort of depression or like, you know, manic depression or whatever goes back that far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She goes, no, you weren't depressed. You were just sick. So they thought you were depressed. And I was like, I don't think that's true. (laughs) But we'll never know, right? I know. Our poor parents, like, I feel like they probably wish that they could cherry pick what we remember and not like the one time that they did. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I feel bad. And there's no way to win as a parent, I think. But again, I remember the support. I remember Mm -hmm. the general feeling of being safe, even if I don't remember our, our trip to Canada. 
You went to Canada? Apparently. <laughs> no. <laughs> I do. Re- I remember a little bit of that one, but there's other things where I'm like, we went where? What? <laughs> yeah. But I think it's good. I think sometimes it's good to not press too hard because sometimes things are kept for you for a reason. And that's the only way you can move forward. If I remembered every rejection I've gotten on my work, I would like never work again. Yeah. Melissa, want to come on in and, and tell us about your memory? I have a very good memory. Um, and I realized early on that my memory was so good that I had to stop <laughs> judging people for not remembering things the way that that they happen Mm -hmm. like my memory is like excellent sometimes it has to be like triggered by something but like like for instance I'm on this subreddit where they just post nostalgia things and yesterday I found this like scooby-doo icy making making thing and that I had when I was four Oh, and wow. I sent the picture to my mom and I can distinctly remember us like sitting in our kitchen. And because I moved around so much as a kid, I always remember what house I was in. So it's like a good timestamp for everything. Oh, and yeah. I distinctly uh, remember us in the kitchen turning this thing, eating and it would get a, make a mess. And my mom's <laughs> like, why are you sending this to me? Um, or just, <laughs> she or, even just or even just conversations like that I had last week with somebody. And I remember exactly where I was sitting, how the conversation went, and they don't remember the conversation. Wow. Is it hard to have a good memory? Yeah. It's hard because I remember a lot of things and other people don't. Mm. <laughs> how do you convince them? Well, I go through, I say the whole, what the whole conversation was. Like, I can go through every beat of what the conversation was. Is it hard to still feel so close to bad memories? It really is because... Sometimes I I can't let go of things because I Mm -hmm. know exactly how they transpired and I can't forget. It's a a burden and a curse. (laughs) But also, I mean, obviously it makes you're very observant. Yeah. And like you probably retain knowledge a lot better. For the most part, it's not anything that I've read. I have to like live through it or it has to be said. Do you bother trying to convince people that? Like what things happened or is it just endlessly frustrating? I know that I'm right all the time. People know that I'm right a lot. And and I, I and I hate saying that, but it's the truth. Like right. I'm right <gasps> most of the time because I remember <laughs> what happened. Yeah. And so like they'll realize later like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. Or, yeah, that's <gasps> what I said. And it's like, I know because that's what happened. <laughs> Oh my God. So my mom feels similarly where she's the only one with a good memory. And I can see that Mm -hmm. it's hurtful to her that all these things have happened that she, that we don't remember. And I've seen a few exchanges with her and my dad about things where like these big memories to her, like important moments in their relationship. He just doesn't remember. (gasps) That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I find that people are too anxious and looking toward the future while things are happening. So I've been trying really hard actually to like, be in the moment so that I do mm. remember things um, and trying to like take in things on purpose. Like Mal and I were like dancing in the living room and I was like, remember this. Um, <laughs> there's so many formative parts of the beginning of our relationship that I was so anxious about if we were going to end up together that I like wasn't in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading this book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron, which I recommend uh, if you're interested in in the moment mindfulness. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know that when I'm, and it's kind of proven that like when you're in a traumatic situation, your like memory doesn't really work as well. Mm-hmm. 
I knew that like in the last conversation I ever had with Jake, I, I took notes. You did? I took notes on my phone so that when, because I knew that everyone would ask me what he had mm-hmm. said. I knew that I would have to like go back and I knew That's that I, I could not trust myself. So as he was telling me pretty much the most hurtful stuff I've ever heard in my life, um, I was sitting there taking notes on my phone so that I, that I would have it and that I could trust myself that that's what he had said, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. You should. I like to record conversations. Oh, that's creepy. No, Do they like, know that you're recording? Yeah. Them? You ask. You ask. Yes, you ask. Okay. Um, but sometimes it's interesting. Okay. I don't know if this is good advice, but sometimes if you're in a relationship and you're not sure if like you're being gaslit or something. Yes, then it is very good to record. And sometimes you can, you should secretly record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then go back that. over it because you're not sure if you're being manipulated. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if that's good. Don't quote me, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's worked. <laughs> what do we rate this episode i'm gonna give it 29 out of 15 underground discos oh, yeah I love that. i'm gonna give it 10 out of 9 overworked queer people <laughs> and i will give it 13 out of 11 forgotten memories wow <laughs> we covered a lot in this episode really i did. know <laughs> Thank you so much to Daryl for being a guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production. Hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And at JBU Podcast on Instagram for us and at Allison Raskin for Allison and at Gabby Road for me. Woo! Forever! Yeah.